invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 128. We are continuing our series in the Psalms of Ascent, and tonight we are at Psalm 128. But before we submit ourselves to the Lord's Word, let us call upon Him for His grace and help. Father, I do ask that as we hear your word, as we think hard about what your word teaches us, I pray that you would renew our minds by the power of your spirit. I pray that your word would not come back empty. Lord, we thank you that you promise it never will. Lord, I pray that you would guard my tongue, that you would guard all of our hearts, that we would leave here knowing you better and therefore loving you more, being more overcome with how great and glorious a God you are, and that we would long for nothing more than we long for you. So even now, we confess that we need our affections to be changed. So often we, we seek other pleasures that are not true pleasures, and that do not satisfy. So we ask for your grace and we ask for your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The psalmist writes in Psalm 128 which is another song of ascent. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Sometimes simple statements can lead to complex questions. I wonder if you have ever experienced this as you have read the Bible for yourself. For we believe that the message of the Bible is beautifully simple and clear. And yet oftentimes, the more you read it, the more you realize there is so much still don't understand, or perhaps you come across a passage you've read 50 times before and you think, you know, I'm not sure I understand this as well as I thought I did. You thought you had passed through the gateway into the fields of understanding, but soon you find yourself wandering around in a dark labyrinth of confusion and you are not sure how to get out. When this happens, it can feel discouraging. Shouldn't I be able to understand this better? After all, shouldn't increased familiarity with the Bible breed clarity instead of confusion? 
One of the members of the church that I pastored in Chicago for a few years was a philosophy professor at Wheaton College. And he would teach his students, and he would tell them as they would come on the first day of class, and he taught me as I came to be a pastor, and he realized this kid has no idea what he's doing. So he lovingly came alongside me to help me. He teaches his students a good reader is a confused reader. A good reader is a confused reader. And I remember him telling me that and thinking, wow, I must be a much better reader than I thought I was. I thought I was just really slow because I don't understand half of what I'm reading half the time. A good reader is a confused reader. Now that sounds counterintuitive, but what I think he's getting at is that if you are a good reader, you will take time to ask difficult questions of the text you are reading. You'd, you'd tell me, you have not read something well and understood it unless you've read it at least four or five times. A good reader is a confused reader because the good reader takes time to ask difficult questions of the text and then wrestle with those questions and persevere through the difficulty until you come to some understanding. So if you're never confused when you read, it may not mean that you're just smarter than everyone else. It may mean that you're possibly not reading carefully enough. Wrestling with confusing questions then is the evidence that perhaps you're, you're starting to go a little bit deeper. You're on your way Below the surface to a deeper understanding. Because if you only swim on the surface of a text, you will only gain a surface level of understanding of that text. It may be pleasant and comfortable. You read, you think, okay, I've got enough. I'm moving on. You don't experience the, the discomfort that comes from going deep where it gets darker and there's, there's more pressure. But you will also avoid the insight that can only be found in those depths. You will not discover much about the ocean if you are only ever snorkeling in the shallows. Neither will you unearth many precious gems if you are only willing to dig an inch deep. And it is the same with the Bible. You must dive into its depths to discover the full wonders of the truth that it offers. You must mine its infinite caverns to unearth the gospel riches waiting for you to lay hold of them. And the only way to do this is to take time, ask questions, and think hard. As Peter writes to some Christians, he talks about Paul's letters and he says, there are hard things in these letters, and so you need to take care and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Growth is a slow process. Similarly, Paul tells Timothy as he writes to him, you need to think about what I'm telling you, and then the Lord will give you understanding. Or the author to the Hebrews laments as he is trying to teach these Hebrews the deep truths of the gospel and he laments you 
you have neglected growing in maturity. You have become dull of hearing, and so you can't understand what I need to teach you. See, the gospel is not some secret wisdom reserved for the intellectually elite, but neither is it a magazine that you lazily flip through as you sit in the lobby of the dentist or doctor's office. We are commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Which means, at least partly, That we must give all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to knowing God as He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. So if you get confused sometimes or a lot of times when you read the Bible, don't be discouraged. You are on the right path. Clarity is often the sum of confusion plus perseverance. Don't give up. As you become confused, you do not rest until the Lord gives you understanding. So you must keep reading for yourself. You must keep asking questions. You must keep sitting under the preaching of the word, speaking with other mature believers about what you're reading, finding good books and commentaries, and going as deep as you can. Do not be content with snorkeling in the shallows, for there is a vast and deep ocean of truth to discover. Now, what does any of this have to do with Psalm 128? Well, at first glance, Psalm 128 appears simple enough. It begins with a declaration of blessedness in verse 1. It moves on to a description of that blessedness and reaffirmation of it in verses 2 through 4. And it concludes with a prayer for God's people to experience that blessedness in verses 5 and 6. The thesis of the psalm is that everyone who fears the Lord will be blessed, particularly with fruitful work and a fruitful family. This all appears fairly clear. You can probably get that on your first reading. I confess, when I saw what psalm I was assigned, I thought, there's not much there. And yet this psalm raises some difficult questions if you stop to think about it. Here are some of the questions that came to my mind as I kept reading over this psalm. Does this psalm really teach that everything will go well for me if I fear the Lord? What does that even mean? Does that mean that I'm never going to suffer if I walk in God's ways? Does it mean I'll never have trouble on earth? Does it mean that if if I obey God, my work will always be rewarding? I'll have lots of kids. My my home will be a happy one. What about when, when life's hard? If I'm suffering, does this automatically mean that I must have sinned in some specific way and God is now punishing me? What if my job isn't going well? What if I'm not the best church planner on the planet and people aren't just flocking to Kalamazoo to hear me preach? What about if I lose my job? What about if my wife and I cannot have kids? What if I lose my kids? Does this mean that I'm, I'm not doing as this psalm commands me to do? And these questions lead to broader questions about how to interpret the Bible, such as 
how are we supposed to understand all of these Old Testament promises we see that seem to promise us earthly prosperity if we follow the Lord? What does it mean to fear the Lord anyway? Am I supposed to be in terror all the time that if I slip up, God is ready right there to strike me down? Doesn't Jesus tell me in the New Testament, don't be afraid? So just a few of the questions that came to mind as I read this psalm. Hopefully, as you can see, this, this raises a lot of questions. And fortunately for you, I'm not going to try and answer all of them in the few minutes that I have. But I do want to try and address two of them. Number one, what does it mean to fear the Lord? We, we have to understand this. The blessings of this entire psalm are contingent upon us fearing the Lord. So what does that mean? And number two, how do Christians today understand and apply Old Testament promises for earthly prosperity? With that second question, I, I hope, will lead us into how we apply this psalm today. So question number one, what is the fear of the Lord? Psalm 128 begins with a declaration of blessing. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. And this is a phrase, the fear of the Lord, that we see throughout the Bible, especially in the wisdom literature. Psalm 128 is a wisdom psalm. It gives advice of how you must live to receive blessing. Wisdom literature teaches you how, what you need to avoid so that you can avoid misery. And the fear of the Lord pops up all the time such as in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it says, The beginning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so you'll encounter again and again, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be wise and knowledgeable, you must fear the Lord. But what does that mean? Well, I believe there are two main elements to the fear of the Lord. First, there is a cognitive element. The fear of the Lord is not just an emotional response. It is a rational response because it necessitates an objective revelation, meaning that the fear of the Lord is partly a rational response to God's self-revelation where he declares who he is and what he requires of you. So the fear of the Lord hinges upon the word of the Lord. Really, there is no fear of the Lord without the word of the Lord. You don't fear what you know nothing about. Silly example, but we're reading Harry Potter right now with our daughter. And there are these wizards and magic, and they know all of these things. And then there are these people they call muggles, who would be like you and me, who don't do mag magic, hopefully. Uh, and at one point... Someone who's just ordinary hears this word dementor, which to a wizard would be very scary. This person had no idea what they were talking about, so there was really no response whatsoever. You have no idea who God is. If you have no idea what he requires of you, what his word says, well, then you're not really going to think twice about it. So there's, there's an intimate connection with the word of the Lord. 
The word of the Lord demands the fear of the Lord. And so the fear of the Lord is the only right response to the word of the Lord. And these two are so intimately connected that in Psalm 19, David even refers to the word of the Lord as the fear of the Lord. In Psalm 19, the psalm begins with with David celebrating God's revelation in creation. And then he moves on to celebrating God's revelation in his word. And he has many synonyms to describe God's word. He calls it the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, and the rules of the Lord. But in Psalm 19 verse 9, he calls God's word the fear of the Lord. It's one of his synonyms. And so the fear of the Lord is intimately connected to God's word. But this cognitive element entails more than knowing God's revelation. It also includes humbly receiving that revelation as true. Throughout Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is connected with knowledge, with wisdom, with instruction, which suggests that fearing the Lord means you accept that his word is true and you submit to his teaching. If you fear the Lord, you will listen to his word above what you think yourself and above what you hear from others. So to fear the Lord is to humble yourself before him, accepting his word as true above all else. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Fear of the Lord is the opposite of being wise in your own eyes. It's the opposite of pride. It's the opposite of what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they did not listen to God's word and submit to what he told them. They listened to the serpent. They wanted to have the knowledge of good and evil for themselves. They wanted to determine what is right and what is wrong. They were wise in their own eyes. And this is why the This is why to fear the Lord in verse 1 of Psalm 128 is paralleled with walking in his ways. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. And so we see that obedience, humble submission is intimately connected to fearing the Lord. The one who fears the Lord will do as the Lord commands. Your feet will walk in the ways of the one whom your heart fears. Now, the second element of the fear of the Lord is is an emotional element. This isn't just all up in in your mind. For the reason that you receive and humbly submit to God's revelation, the reason that you walk in His ways and you follow what He says, is that you recognize that this revelation, which you are responsible to know and die, is a matter of life and death. This is not just good advice you can take or leave and it doesn't really matter. This isn't a a recipe in a cookbook. You you fiddle with it, and if it goes wrong, the worst happens is you taste something that's gross. No, this is a matter of life and death. To accept his word is to live. To reject it is to die. This is why it is, I think, called the fear of the Lord. You understand that what is happening here, what you are hearing, the one you are dealing with is glorious. There is an eternal weight to this revelation. And so you pay attention with the utmost seriousness. 
And so I would summarize that to fear the Lord simply means you take God and his word seriously. Trust that his threats are not idle. His promises are not empty. There is fear because you recognize who God is in all of his glory and power. But there is also this love, this longing because you recognize that he is good and true. And you do not want to follow anyone else other than him. You take him seriously because you trust that he is indeed who he says he is. And he will do what he says he will do. So you approach God with with a longing and with an appropriate dread. I think a helpful depiction of this fear is found in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you think we're bad parents for reading Harry Potter to our daughter, know that we first read the Chronicles of Narnia. And one of my favorite scenes in the book is when the Pevensey children first learn about Aslan. And they're sitting around the table with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they start to hear about this Aslan who is meant to depict Christ. And they soon learn that he is not a man as they supposed. But he is a lion. And Susan responds, ooh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver then replies, That you will, dear. Make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Lucy then questions again if Aslan is safe, to which Mr. Beaver quickly jumps in and says, Safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And to this, Peter, I believe, appropriately responds. I'm longing to see him, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. I think this is a glimpse of what a holy fear of the Lord is like. It includes both a longing and a dread, a desire to come and an appropriate caution as you do. For as you behold your God, you, you stand in awesome wonder before his holy presence, recognizing he is far better, he is far greater than you imagined in his terrible beauty, goodness, and power. And as you see him in his nature, as you see his acts, you realize there is no one you want to be with more. At the same time that you humbly submit to him, come. Again, the fear of the Lord means you take God and his word seriously and you approach him with even more gravity than you would approach a lion. There is a sense of wonder, of awe, of reverence, of longing, and yes, appropriate fear. For our God is not safe, but he is exceedingly good. So I wonder, is this how you Think of your God. Is this how you approach his word? Does your life demonstrate that you take God and his word seriously? 
you trust that he will keep his promises? Both to finally judge sin on the last day as well as to raise up those who have placed their faith in Christ? Do you long for God even as you appropriately humble yourself before him and submit to his word? Or do you approach the Bible and therefore the God of the Bible flippantly? Picking out what you like, discarding what upsets your sensibilities, and slowly forming a God that is a lot more like you and a lot less glorious. To whom will you listen and submit? To yourself? The ever-changing winds of the world or to God? How you answer that question is a matter of life and death. For the eternally blessed man or woman is the one who fears the Lord. That's what I believe biblically the fear of the Lord means. Now the second question, how do Christians today understand Old Testament promises for earthly prosperity? For the psalm continues in verses 2 through 4 to describe what the blessing in verse 1 looks like. And it offers a prayer in verses 5 and 6 that God's people would, would experience the reality of this blessing. Essentially, we see that this blessedness includes fruitful work, verse 2, and a fruitful family in verse 3. These are expressions of general prosperity. The end of verse 2 summarizes the blessing by saying, It shall be well with you. The man's work will be fruitful, as will his family. The wife, as a fruitful vine, denotes bearing children, but it also speaks more broadly to the various ways she will bless the house, such as you would read in Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31. The children as olive shoots suggest that they will be full of strength and health and vitality. For grass is a plant that grows and quickly dies, but an olive shoot lasts and it will one day bear fruit itself. Now what is important to understand is that these are covenant blessings that were promised to Israel, Israel if they would obey God's law. Take for example Deuteronomy 28. Speaking as God's intermediary to the people of Israel, Moses says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field, Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. So we we see these covenant blessings in Psalm 128, specifically for a fruitful ground, the labor of their hands, and fruitful wombs. In other words, Psalm 128 is restating the blessings of the covenant God made with Israel. If Israel walked in God's ways, he would bless them with general prosperity, including fruitful labor and fruitful family. So what do we do with these old covenant promises for earthly prosperity? Should you read Psalm 128 and go away thinking, if I obey God, I I will have success in my job. I'll have a loving spouse. I'll have lots of healthy kids. 
Tonight, I, I want to make two observations to begin to help you, hopefully, understand how to handle these things. Can't deal with it exhaustively, but here are a couple things to keep in mind. First, we must understand that the covenant promises in the Old Testament were not a universal rule for every individual, but were more generally applied to the Israelite community as a whole. You can find several examples of faithful women in the Old Testament who were at one time barren. You think of Sarah, you think of Ruth, you think of Hannah, and apparently ungodly women who had lots of children, such as Penina. Furthermore, you have the example in the Old Testament of Job, who according to God himself was the most blameless man on earth. And the Lord took away everything from him. Took away his wealth, took away his children, took away his health. So while the nation of Israel would generally prosper and flourish if they were faithful, it did not exclude faithful men and women from all suffering, even in the Old Testament. That's the first observation. The second and most important is that we have to remember that Israel broke the Old Covenant. They were unfaithful. You find blessings and curses depending on whether or not Israel would keep the covenant, and they did not do so. Therefore, God made a new covenant with his people, making the Old Covenant obsolete. The author of Hebrews makes this explicit in Hebrews chapter 8. Quoting from Jeremiah 31, he writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern from them, declares the Lord. He goes on to explain, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the old covenant is no longer in effect. God has made a new covenant. And the blessings of the new covenant are not predominantly material and immediate, They are primarily spiritual and and future. Hebrews makes clear that the old covenant was designed to be temporary and demonstrate the need for something better. Thus the author writes in Hebrews 7.22 that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant, which includes better promises and blessings. For in the new covenant, God promises I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And furthermore, he promises, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In Hebrews 9.15, we see that the new covenant guarantees us an eternal inheritance. You will have more prosperity than you could ever imagine. It is not promised to you now. It's promised on the day that our Lord returns. For not only was the old covenant designed to show us our need for a better covenant, it was designed to, I think, create in us a hunger for even better promises. 
One that could not be achieved through the means of the old covenant. Not because it was deficient in any way. Because that's not what it was designed for. So in the context of the entire Bible, I do not believe that Psalm 128 is a promise that if you obey God, you will never suffer. It is not a promise that you will always have success at your job, nor is it a promise that you will have a wife or that you will have kids. Or if you do have a wife kids, wife and kids, it's not a promise that you'll always be happy and healthy and live for a long time. Now, I think this is important to point out because it guards us from misplaced anger, thinking, God, you're not giving me what you promise. And it also guards us from misplaced shame and guilt. And we might think that our suffering must necessarily mean that we have sinned against God and He is angry with us. Now, understanding the relationship between sin and suffering and God's discipline, that's, that's another complex question that I, I can't get into tonight. But let me simply say now that as a general rule, it is, it is best not to determine whether or not you are right with God based on how your life is going at the time. You see, the righteous will suffer at times. The wicked will prosper at times. God will call you to to repentance through painful means. He will also call you to repentance through His kindness, as Paul says in Romans. So if we just look at our circumstances, we can't necessarily figure out, are we following God? Are we walking in His footsteps, in His ways? The way to figure that out, the most reliable way is to read His Word. His word tells you his ways. So does all of this mean, conclusion, you know what, Psalm 128 really has nothing to say to us anymore today. So let's close our Bible and go home. No. It means that the coming of Christ more brightly illuminates this psalm and reveals to us the full depth of the blessings that are ours when we fear the Lord and walk in his way. Psalm 128 is a song of ascent, most likely sung as God's people would travel to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. I would imagine that this psalm took on a deeper, fuller meaning as God's people, the Israelites, returned from exile in Babylon. They sang this with a new understanding, a new anticipation, a deeper longing. That event changed things. And I believe that we understand this psalm, we sing this psalm with an even deeper meaning in light of the cross, in light of the coming of our Savior. See, truly it shall be well on that day for those who fear the Lord, who have taken His word seriously, trusting that He is who He says He is and will do what He says He will do. So if you take God's word seriously, what do you do in light of Christ's coming? Well, God's word promises everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
What is the work that you are to do? Jesus tells us in John 6, 29. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's what you do if you take his word seriously. You place all of your faith, all of your hope, all of your trust, all of your joy in Christ. To fear the Lord, then, is to receive Christ as your Savior, to learn from Him as your teacher, and to obey Him as your Lord, walking in Him by the power of the Spirit. For Christ is the answer and fulfillment to all of the prayers and promises in the Psalms. Indeed, He is the yes and amen to all of God's promises, period. You see, Christ is the true blessed one. All of the blessings and promises that God gives to those who walk in Him, those are all ours in Christ, for He did perfectly walk in God's ways. And so if you are in Him, then all of God's blessings belong to you. In Him, we may now safely approach our God, whom we fear and long for. With full confidence, we may draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And this is only through Christ. For only he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. This psalm is a song of anticipation for that final day. When Christ returns, And on that day, we will eat the fruit of the labor of his hands. And all shall be well with us as we are with him. As his bride, we will be like a fruitful vine. And as God's children, we will be like olive shoots around his table. And when we finally arrive to that new Jerusalem, the prayer of Psalm 128 will be answered. We will see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of our lives, and we will rejoice as we behold generation after generation whom God has gathered safely into his presence and into his eternal peace. This is a song of hope as we keep walking in God's ways and wait for the new Jerusalem to come. And it will all be ours most assuredly you have placed your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet as we walk. It is a light unto our path. So we pray that we would walk every day by the light of your word. That every day we would seek Christ. Paul said that we would, be, we would be willing to suffer anything and everything to attain the resurrection of the dead. Pray for those who are discouraged. who don't feel like there's much blessing from following the Lord. Pray that they would see more of their Savior. And they would trust that you keep your promises. You are who you say you are. And you will do what you say you will do. And you have promised that you will raise up all those who have placed their faith in Christ. Help us not to seek earthly treasures, but heavenly ones. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.